All right. On that, we're going we're gonna to jump to Genesis 6. We're going to continue in the series on resilient faith. And uh, I want to pray uh, as we lean into this. Talk about faith and resilience. Uh, right now, Anthony and Laura, I've mentioned them before. They're our partners in Eastern Europe. They, they are leading a church in Estonia, a country that I love dearly. Two of my sister-in-laws happen to be Estonian. Well, uh, Anthony and Laura have been having major complications with their first child. Uh, they've almost lost the baby. I got a text this morning. I haven't gotten an update, and she's in the hospital, and probably you've already delivered. The doctors have given this baby no chance to live, no chance to leave the hospital. Uh, their daughter has so many health complications, and so I don't know. They may be grieving right now. Um, they, they may be rejoicing. I, I literally, I've been checking my phone and haven't heard word. So we want to pray uh, for Anthony and Lara, but for everyone in this room who's also dealing with real stuff, right? Uh, we're, we're, our hearts are heavy. Second thing is Uganda, where we do a lot of ministry work, we have lots of key partnerships, is on lockdown over COVID. For 42 days, all churches have been shut. Everything has been shut. And so we, uh, we to collectively sponsor 200 children to go to schools. Schools have been shut. So we want to pray the life of God. We know what that's like, don't we? And they're going down to their second lockdown. We had one and thought we're never going to return. We're all going to move to Idaho. It's all over. Um, I'm sorry, some of you have moved to Idaho. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> but it's the place, I mean, come on, it's the place where everyone from here is like, I can't afford California. I'm going to Idaho. Um, as I get myself in trouble. It's getting deeper and deeper, folks. Uh, let's pray. Lord, would you pray for Anthony and Laura? We love them and their baby, fearfully and wonderfully made. We don't understand, God, all that you're doing. We don't understand why. Um, but we hold on to you and we pray as real brothers and sisters to a couple that almost no one in this room knows, but I do, we pray that your life-giving presence would be all over their experience right now and they would know your nearness, whether they're crying with joy or crying with sorrow. We pray for them. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters and ministry partners all over Uganda and we pray that the virus would be stopped. We pray that lives would be saved and we pray that people would not physically starve in the process. God, your kingdom come, your will be done, we pray. And push back the work of the enemy, we pray, in Jesus' beautiful name. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, I'm a little fired up, so I'm going to warn you on if you haven't figured that one out. Um, but we're in week two, and we're looking at what it means to have a faith in Jesus that is resilient. That it's not wishy-washy. That our faith in God is growing and it's becoming a bedrock. Last week we started with five things that are foundational ingredients to a faith that will last. And if you missed it, uh, the podcast is available, YouTube's available. I encourage you to watch it because it, everything we're doing now is based on those five things. So a uh, definition, because I know some of you did miss last week. What is resilient faith? Let's look at it together. It is a posture of our heart, our mind, and our soul to remain steadfast in following Jesus in a culture in opposition to that pursuit. A resilient faith is, is a heart issue. It is a mind issue. It's a soul issue. It's a choice that you and I are going to have to make. Why? The culture continues to shift away 
from a mindset, a heart, a thinking, an action that's in alignment with the way of Jesus. Now, having traveled the world the last 25 years, it's no surprise to me, but if you've been born and raised in America and this has been your whole worldview, you're like, what's happening to the world? All over the world, there are movements that are pushing against the teachings of Jesus, against the words of the Bible, against the belief in a personal God. So this isn't new. This shouldn't shock us. The question is, how are we going to live? How are you going to live? In light of a culture that's moving away from God-like thinking and behavior, are we going to go with the flow? Or are we going to follow Jesus in the middle of it? And the question we're asking all summer long is, can we glean things from people who've gone before us? I hope, side note, that you have some older people in your life. You say, well, I am old. You're not that old. There's always someone older. And if it's not physically in age and years older, maybe in maturity, maybe in experience. On the job, I hope you have someone who's further along, who's building in your life that you're open to receive. And when it comes to faith, hopefully you have people in your life that have gone farther with God, longer with God, and stayed true in a culture that's pushing against them. Why? Because we can grow. So today, we're going to look at Noah. His, his, his life is given to us in Genesis 5 through 9. We're not going to do a character study each week, like here's what they did and here's how cool they are. We're going to hone in on what was their problem? What was the culture doing that made faith in God hard? And how did they press through? And where did they succeed? And as we're going to see in Noah, where did they fail? It's possible to learn from other people's blunders, sins, uh, turning, rebellion. And so every week you may see someone that's like you. But even if not, we can learn from them. All right, here we go. Genesis 6, and we'll start in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Sounds like today. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and, the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I'm going to wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I, I regret that I've made them. And then the line turns. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, here's what we see. We're starting chronologically, like more at the beginning of the Bible. God makes a world that's beautiful and good. He makes the animals and it's good and the plants and the good and the sky and it's good and day and night and it's good. And he makes men and women and he says it's good. The world is good. Yeah, if we're honest, right now, a lot of it does not look good. And if we want to be honest about resilience and faith, we have to start at the beginning. Whose fault is it? And what, what we're going to get is there are some who would say, well, it's the belief in God that causes all the problems. If there wasn't all this religion in the world, then the world would be a better place because it's these people's skewed vision from some, some God in some ancient book that's causing all the problems and it's causing division. Some people, that's their like analysis. What do we get from the Bible? What do we get from God? God makes it good. Men and women turn away from God, do their own thing, and don't realize cause and effect. And that one leads to another, it leads to another. And just get a great new outfit and pour a little bit of junk on it. And, and even though the bottom's not stained, the top is, and in a sense, 
the whole thing gets ruined. And what you see from generations, from Adam and Eve all the way down to Noah, is increasing evil. So, so some of us see, well, it's not that big of a deal. People are mostly good, to which I'd say, read the Bible. God is always good, and people move from worse to worse without God. That's what we see. Because their heart was increasingly wicked. So God does what really annoys people. Some people say, I can't follow God if he's the God of Noah. Because why would God stop this? Why would God wipe everyone out? God is hard. God is evil. God is not love. That's how we think of what love and justice really are. And as you read the Bible, what you realize is God's heart was what? Grieved. His heart was grieved. So God responds with who he is. He's love and justice. He's both. So he loves men and women. He loves what he made and he loves his world. And as we take it and wreck it, you know what love does? Love stops evil. Love. It's why I don't care what movie you're watching. When there's an injustice and, and the police or people or the court find the guilty one and they stop them, especially when the crimes are horrible and getting worse, we rejoice. Our hearts are grieved when people get away with junk. And the Bible begins in Noah's story with God's heart broken over what people have done and a plan. His plan is not to wipe out the planet. His, his plan is to make it new. Because whatever was going on, it was not getting any better. That's the beginning of where God interacts with Noah. Verse 8 Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Look at verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah's very name, and in Hebrew, names mean something in our culture, not as much. But in their culture, your name identified either what people saw in you or what they believed you could be. And Noah's very name means to rest, to comfort. Noah's name is a comfort. You could call Noah the man of relief. He, his name is he brings relief. And, and here's the contrast of his life. In a world that's spiraling out of control where God has to come in and stop evil, one person, one, finds favor with God and it's the person who can bring relief. So there's something about Noah we're supposed to know. I'm going to challenge you. Every week, we're going to look at a different person. Do me a favor. Read the actual Bible account of their life. Sometimes as Christians, we think we know the story because we heard a lesson years ago, and we, we know the cliff notes. Every word that God gives about a person matters. Sometimes we believe what we've seen on TV about them. If you've seen a movie about Noah, you, you think of the crazy scenes, you know, right where the ark is about to close, and rah! And you realize none of that's in the Bible. So read the Bible because you're going to get insight from God. And here's the insight we get from God. It's clear as day. Noah was three things, righteous, blameless, and walked faithfully. That's what we're supposed to know about the person of comfort, the man of relief. He, he's three things. He's righteous. The word righteous is huge in the Bible. Some words just are threaded from the beginning to the end. Genesis to Revelation, you're going to see the word righteous. It's the first time it appears. 
And there's the principle of first mention. When the first time something is mentioned in the Bible, it often, not always, often sets the trajectory of what that word means. Noah is righteous. What is righteous? The Hebrew word is sarach, and it means a just person or a person who does the right thing, which kind of makes sense. But this is important to know that righteousness isn't an attitude. Um, Would you agree with this statement? Some people are simply nicer than other people. Would you agree with that? Well, the answer is yes, because we all immediately had a mental picture of someone who's nicer than us, right? (laughs) That's just a fact. Some people are just nicer, kinder. Some people are more predisposed to care and love and concern than others. And so we sometimes think like, well, they're like, you know, goody two-shoes, or they're like, they're that, that, they're naturally bent that way. That's not what we get in the Bible. A righteous person is a person who does the right thing. It's actually an action. So Noah is not just a kind soul. Noah sees the wickedness and he does what's right. He sees that people have abandoned God and Noah doesn't. People aren't listening to the word of God. Noah does. So it's about action. The second thing is it says he is blameless. This is why heroes of the faith are quite annoying because we're not like them. At least we don't think we are. And so we realize the word blameless doesn't mean never sinned. It means completely sound. Noah is filled with integrity. Do you know someone with integrity? doesn't mean someone with integrity is perfect, flawless. It means that they're completely, they're sound in the way they think, they feel, they act. And, and so they, they kind of have it in balance. And that's that's Noah. And then the summary is he walked faithfully, which implies he made the right choices to live godlike in his life, and no one else is. How do I know this? We just keep reading. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was filled with violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end To all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of, notice, them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So Noah is living in a culture that's not pursuing God. And his is the extreme because we see how many people does God find that are living right? One. Like literally, one person and his household are pursuing God. And you think it's bad here. So you say, like, man, I hate to see the decline in our country. And I hate to see the decline in America. And I hate to see the decline. Well, you think you got it bad. Look at Noah. Everyone, how many people are on the earth? I don't know. But I know that he, he can't find. And Noah, hear this, is living faithful without the support. You see, at least what we have is we have other Jesus people. One of the beautiful things about being part of a church is we can lean in on one another. I'm going to have some good weeks. I'm going to have some tough weeks. There's some times I'm going to be on. There's going to be times I'm going to be off. There's going to be times I'm going to have courage. There's going to be some times where I'm just living in fear. But I don't need to fall down because I have you. We have each other. We have the benefit of the people of God. So you can lean on me. I can lean on you. We can grow together and we can go stronger. Who does Noah have? No one. So his family has him. 
But Noah is able to follow God. Now, what does God tell him to do? Verse 14. Let's just keep reading. So make an ark, make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and cover it with pitch inside and out. And, and this is how you're to build it. The ark is to be, and then he gives these descriptors, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof, leaving below the roof, an opening, one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark. Make lower, middle, and upper decks. And I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my agreement, my covenant with you. And you're going to enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And you're to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female. Keep them alive with you. Two of every bird, two of every kind of animal, two of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come with you to be kept alive. And you're to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it as food for you and for them. And if that is like, well, who cares about that? Read the next line, verse 22. It's the key. Noah did everything just as he wanted. It's not what it says. Noah did everything just as God commanded it. And here's what you need to know. None of this makes sense. God did not tell Noah to build something that made sense. He told Noah to build something that was foolish and that his culture, which is already bent against God, was going to mock him for. I want you to see a photo of uh, a description of scaled Noah's Ark. And just to, to get a visual, those are people on the ground. And I think this is in Arkansas, and this is like the, the Ark Adventure or something like that. Someone was wild enough to take these dimensions and build it. And notice, okay, can, can Noah hide this in his backyard? I, I want, we laugh. But I want you to think about what resilient faith is. Resilient faith is God tells you to build something so massive and so unnecessary. They had never seen a flood. They didn't know what this was for. And as everyone is pelting Noah to find out, what are you going to do with this? Well, some of the creatures are going to come with me on it, and there's going to be a lot of water, and this is going to keep us alive. And you thought you had trouble telling people that you love Jesus. <laughs> Do you know, more than any other belief system in America, now over time this may change, right now more people say they love and follow Jesus than any other belief system in America. There are more Americans who say, yeah, I'm like for that. So we have a lot of people who are following Jesus. Don't let anyone lie to you and say, oh, it's in decline and it's over. No one's following Jesus. Look, any stat can be skewed to fit your narrative. I'm telling you, there are a lot of people following Jesus, and yet we're still scared chicken to mention his name. Noah is building an ark to rescue a world that's not dying. And this is what it means to have resilience. You thought you were the crazy one. Noah is given these words, and Noah does it exactly as God said. Here's a key to resilient faith. God sometimes invites us to do things that don't make sense to other people. And following the way of Jesus, for you, may not seem like it makes sense. And to the people that you know and love and are around you, this way of living 
makes no sense. But I wonder, are we going to be the people who do things the way God says to do them, or are we going to do our own thing? Now, how does this lay in with our story? Like I said, there are more people who say that they follow Jesus in America than any other belief system, yet I think for many it hasn't gotten to a deep, heart-changing, life-altering vision that makes a difference in everyday life. A lot of people say they follow Jesus, but not everyone has this kind of tenacious stick to to saying, I'm going with God no matter what the culture is doing. Instead, you know what often happens? And this is the challenge from Noah to us. I think we're going to be tempted to do what everyone else is doing. Because in Noah's day, everyone was doing what's right in their own eyes except him. And the temptation for us is simply to fit in. It's not even, it's not even like that we're going to stand up and be persecuted for our faith. The greater temptation for you tomorrow when you go to work or when you go home, if your home is divided on who Jesus is and what that means, is to simply go with the flow. And that's where Noah finds himself. How are we going to respond when there's a clash of visions? God has a vision for this world. Beautiful. It's made by him. We saw from the study of the revelation of Jesus, he's going to make it new. And we're going to walk with him forever. But there are other people with other visions of what life is supposed to be like that are in direct contrast to God. And so what do we do? Now what's going to happen is uh, we're going to have to wrestle with the slippery slope. You can only disagree with yourself for so long. In the end, if you find yourself and your actions are taking you down a path, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to be convicted that your living is outside of what's right and true. And by the Holy Spirit, you're going to come back to righteousness, right living, acting justly, doing what is right. Or uh, one of my mentors, he's now with Jesus, Luis Palau, and he had all sorts of friendships all over the world. And as I travel with him, he was grieved many times because he would hear about someone who is a leader in one of his campaigns, and then two decades later, he goes back to visit and finds out that that leader who loved Jesus, really believed the Bible, was living in a, in a way that was pleasing to God, has now abandoned the faith or whatever. And he would say to me often, and now it's making sense, especially given all that's happened in the last year. He's like, Jose, when someone says they've made a radical change in what they believe, in that they believed the Bible, that they believed in Jesus, that they followed him, but then said, well, I don't know if the Bible's really true, and I don't know if, if the Bible really speaks to that issue in the way you think it does, and, and who am I to say what other people think or believe? He's like, when people make that flip, most often, not always, but most often, all you need to do is listen and watch. And what you're going to find out over time is it wasn't a mental decision. It was actually behavior. So often what happens is you, you can only be in conflict with yourself for so long. So what happens is you, you're going to either change what you think to be true to fit behavior. And he's like, just, just watch and listen because the immediate reason for abandoning the faith is usually not the ultimate reason. And, and it's a slippery slope. Now, 
I've watched that happen to people I know. So I've seen that to be true. And right now, it's super popular, so I want to talk to it. Um, a, a catchword, a popular word right now is I'm, I'm in the process of deconstruction. And so maybe that's a new term to you, especially if you're a younger person, but there are blogs about it, books about it, and very loud voices about it right now. And what is deconstruction when it comes to faith? It's when a person asks questions that basically lead them to dismantling what they previously believed. So um, we've had a year where we've not been together and lots of us have been in our home. We've been away from Jesus' people for obvious reasons. And so, but then I've been listening to more podcasts or I've been reading this or I've been checking out that blog and in the middle of it, I began to wonder, you know, the church, the church really hasn't gotten it right when it comes to racial justice. As a matter of fact, the more I've been reading, the more I've been seeing it seems to be like the church is complicit in the putting down of other people. And oh, wow, I, I keep looking and I realize, and then the path goes to, I, I don't know if what I've been told, if any of it is sound, and what I need to do is I need to get away from that because actually the whole system has become toxic. And I do, I want to love Jesus, but mm, the Jesus of the Bible allow a global pandemic? That just doesn't seem to make sense. And we live in Portland. Okay, I, I see what the Bible says, but then I hear the voices in LGBTQ community, and I begin to wonder, I don't know if, if the Bible really has any voice or anything really specific, and I don't think Jesus really said anything about human sexuality and, and how I express these God-given passions. I, I, I don't think any of that's right. And I'm beginning to question what I believe. Now, I need to make a distinction here. Having questions is a beautiful thing, and it's a gut-wrenching thing, but it's an honest thing. And there are multiple approaches. Deconstruction is the dismantling of faith to reemerge on the other side of what is right and genuine and true. The challenge is bias. And the challenge, which sometimes we forget, is we need to remember um, that we're not the greatest guide to what's right and good and true because we're skewed. And what we, we want to do is we want to intellectually address the questions without deconstructing our faith because deconstructing my faith puts me at the center of rightness rather than something outside of me. And so... We need to value questions, and if you're having honest questions about the Bible, about Jesus, history, uh, about what, what the scriptures teach about a particular issue, I would encourage you to ask those questions cleanly. Uh, I want to recommend a podcast. We're going to put it in our weekly. I, I encourage you to subscribe to it. It's by a dear friend of mine, Evan Wickham. He planted a church that we help support called Park Hill in San Diego, and they're in a series in the Psalms. Two weeks ago, he did a teaching called Praying Through Doubt and Deconstruction, I would encourage every single one of you to listen to twice. Because what he's evaluated, and there's a psalm which deals with deconstruction, believe it or not, there's a psalm in there about it, and what he's found is we can approach our questions in a clean, honest way. What's clean and honest? Well, we bring them to God. And we bring our questions and our doubts to God's people. And we're not foolish, and we don't just take what someone said. Now, some, hear me, hear me, hear me. Some deconstruction is good. 
Uh, there may be cultural things that you were taught. Uh, in order to impress God, I need to wear a shirt and tie on Sunday in God's house. That's how I was raised. Wear your Sunday best. We're in the Northwest. We threw that out. But it's okay to say, okay, do I need to wear my best clothes to honor God in worship? If that's what you're questioning, that's a healthy, good, nothing wrong with that um, kind of question. But faith deconstruction is usually not centered around those secondary things. It's, uh, it's, it's questioning the primary things. So when it comes to the primary things, we need to come cleanly and we need to doubt our doubt. We need to question our own motives. Do you know what? I'm finding more and more, not always, can't stereotype, more and more it's a question of behavior than actually belief. I want to justify my behavior. I don't want to feel bad about myself. And it is much easier to change what I believe about truth than to change my behavior by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is the question of Noah. This is actually where Noah speaks into our life because he questions the motives of the culture around him and he, and he follows God. You can deconstruct or question dirty, that is, where you don't recognize your own biases, where you don't recognize your own shortcomings in your behavior, and when you pull away from the community and say, I have to sort this out myself. Uh, by yourself is probably the least healthy place to help yourself, just ask the medical community. They would call it self-diagnosis. Take you and the internet and figure out how to take care of all your ills. No, you need a team of healthy outside voices who actually know what they're talking about to bring you through and wrestle with those questions and come out the other side and you will probably drop some unhealthy things in that process and that's good and you'll pick up some new healthy things and hopefully your own soul will be convicted by the Holy Spirit of shortcomings that need the grace of God. That is a healthy questioning. Now what does Noah's obedience look like? Hebrews 11 tells us, Verses six and seven, without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Unfortunately, many people in their attempt to get an authentic faith are losing their faith. But what is faith in the Bible? At its essence is there's a God who's above and he's pursuing me, and he rewards those who pursue him. So if your questioning leads you away from a God who made it all and who loves you, then I would question the questioning and how healthy it is when in the end many are leaving with, in a sense, a bankrupted faith that doesn't help them and Jesus means less to them than he did before. I pray that wouldn't happen to you. But by faith, verse 7, Noah, when warned about things uh, not yet seen, in holy fear he built an ark to save his family. So by his faith he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that's in keeping, keeping with faith. So Noah's life speaks. Now Noah is not out there condemning people. Nowhere in the text, in the movies it shows up, but nowhere, nowhere in the text is Noah pointing his finger at people. 
But Noah's life speaks. His trust in the God he cannot see speaks. Because in the end, guess what? Noah and his family are saved. It didn't seem like it. How long was Noah building? How long? Ten months? Was it like a quick fix house? It's here today and gone in 30, you know? No. Noah is building for a long time. And in the end, Noah's life speaks beyond him. And I hope that for you, what God wants for you is a faith that speaks when you're far and gone. That you live not perfectly, but with integrity. Uh, Not without sin ever, but a grace-receiving life. And at the end of your story, people will look back at your life and say, wow, man, they received the reward of God, and I see the track record. But know this, most of the time you're building and you look like a fool. And that is the Christian faith. So if we're waiting to be popular, let's just abandon this gig and, and break out the donuts. If we're looking for the world to applaud our following of Jesus, we are going to be so saddened. But you know what? We're either going to live for the applause of people who don't matter, or we're going to live for the praise of a God who gave himself for us. Hear hear me. Noah is saved by an ark, which is a picture of what's to come. Because in the end, is Noah's life perfect? Here's the beautiful part. No. Just keep reading. Jump down to chapter 9. This is so good. If you've messed up, if you've made some mistakes, if you've gone off course, join the club of Noah. After the ark, he's rescued. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 20, says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and laid uncovered inside of his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth, they took a garment and they laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards. This is a weird picture, by the way. And covered their father's naked body. It's in the Bible. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah woke awoke from his wine, he found out what his youngest son had done. He said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will be uh, to his brothers. And then he goes and speaks to all three of his sons. We can't get into the details here. This is an awkward exchange. Here's what we do know. And there's cultural nuances here, which are hard for us to, to grapple with. Shaming your dad. There was something in their culture about honoring your parents. And whatever the son does, it's really bad. But the Bible gives us the sadder part. Noah plants a vineyard which is good. But just like Adam and Eve, he distorts what's good and he gets drunk. And it's his drunken state that leads to a situation where a son can build on that. And you know what you're getting? The ripple effect of sin. You see, God can remove people and start over with Noah, but the sinful heart still reemerges. And then the train of sin after Noah gets so bad that by chapter 10 and chapter 11, God has to change the languages that people speak to push people away because their evil is just like it was before the flood. So what does Noah's life speak to? 
the reality of sin in our world. You are gonna follow Jesus and I'm gonna follow Jesus and we're gonna have moments of shame too. But Noah is rescued from the ark, in the ark and Noah is seen as an example of faith. Not perfect. Thank God the Bible gives us the whole story because then we would realize, man, I'm never going to be Noah. I'm never going to be Abraham. I'm never going to be Joseph. I'm never going to be David. I'm never going to be Ruth. I'm never going to be these people. Someone else is going to be a person of great faith. I'm just going to be a little no one until you realize everyone, even the heroes, have flaws. And that's good news because everyone needs the grace that comes through Jesus. What are we saying in Noah's life? One line to summarize it all. I could have done this shorter, but that would have been boring. We can live faithful to follow Jesus and finish well. It's possible. What you get is at the tail end of Noah's life, a bad chapter. But you keep reading afterwards because at the end of chapter 9, it says after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. This, This episode wasn't his only story. And so the word to us is, A resilient faith means sometimes we're going to fail. Sometimes we're going to get it right. Noah obeys God's commands completely. He gets it right. Another time he he builds in the soil and while he's at work, he slips. And can't that happen to you as well? At the office, it seems like you're passionately following Jesus on Sunday when you're with your community group and on the, the right occasions. But when you're in the office or when you're at school or when you're with your buddies, you, you slip like Noah to behavior that doesn't honor God. Here's the word. There's grace in and through Jesus. So Peter, later on, in First or Second Peter, when he's talking about salvation, he describes it as, as Noah was saved from the waters. So in Jesus, we're now saved in the washing of baptism, in the washing of our old, in the giving of the new. Noah's a picture of what's going to come fully in and through Jesus. So here's what we need to ask ourselves. Do I actually want to live faithful to Jesus to the end? Some of you are like, Jose, I just want to hold on to him out of my parents' house. I just need to hold on because I don't want to hear it from them. Uh, And and if that's you, hear my heart. Uh, It's okay to be honest about it. But being honest about it isn't enough to save you. Because if you think, you just, I just want to get out and I want to experience my life, um, just talk to the people who weren't rescued in the boat with Noah. And and the the livelihood that you're going to live 10, 20, 30 years from now is being shaped right now. The question is, are you being shaped by Jesus Is he building you into someone who's got character and integrity? And is your life going to stand or are you going to fade? Not just crash and burn. We've seen those. But I think the, the, the greater, more subtle danger for us all is to slowly fade into a faith that's weak and, and useless. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything for us. And it certainly doesn't model anything for someone who's seeking God Now we want to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Holy Spirit, help us and guide us to what it's going to take to live faithful. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come with this pressing question. By now, you're already asking yourself, but let me just vocalize what you're thinking. What step is God prompting me to take 
to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus. That could be adding something like time with God. We have time for everything. It's, it's crazy. I sometimes say it myself, but then I catch myself and I've got to correct myself. I can make time for anything, but why does it seem like time with God seems impossible? Maybe we want to ask the Holy Spirit to deepen our desire to even want more of Jesus. Whatever, maybe it's stopping something. Maybe it, it's, you know, Noah did these things and it didn't help and you're finding yourself doing these things and maybe it's asking the Holy Spirit to give you the power. The thing is, you can live faithful and you can finish well. That's God's heart for you. And that's why he brought you here and that's why church matters. Because together, we can grow and end our lives well. Luis Palau is with Jesus, and I'm telling you, he ended well. And I want to end well, and I want you to end well. So let's ask God for grace. Lord, you know us. You, in Genesis 6, you saw the earth, and you saw what was in people's hearts, and you see my heart, and you see the hearts of every leader on the stage, and you see the hearts of everyone watching here in this building. You see the hearts of those watching at home, live, or, or on YouTube days later. You know our heart, God. And now we invite you, Holy Spirit, because you are the love of God, to come and bring the love of God into our heart, Holy Spirit, that we would know that we're loved, that we would know that the forgiveness that comes from Jesus is real and that we would know your power to actually live out our faith and not just make excuses why we can't. Holy Spirit, we need you, so we're inviting you to take these songs and take this expression and take our moment where we eat the bread and we drink the cup and we remember you, Jesus, and use those to build bricks of resilience, we pray, that our faith would stand. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand if you're in the room. If you're watching from home, I'm gonna invite you to grab the bread and cup. Uh, you who have it in the room, we'll, we'll take it together after this song and make these songs, I hope, your prayer for God to move.